Hi, I'm Bob Switzer, and this is the Epic Narrative. Hey, paranoia. <laughs> paranoia self-destroyer. I think that's a phrase from like an 80s band. Uh, it's a true it's a true phrase, but I think it is. Maybe David Bowie. I probably shouldn't even guess because a bunch of you will be like, oh my God, I know that song. And it's not David Bowie. And I should have looked it up if I'm going to use it, but I didn't. So have fun with that. Uh, feel free to email me at uh, thebobswitzer at gmail.com and let me know where it's actually from. All right. So we left David, and I, and I purposely spent time hanging out on those verses with David in the in the cave because I wanted you to in the you know in the flow of the narrative, David hung out in the caves. There was a there was a whole lot of life, day to day life that happened in the caves. The community of of that was built in the caves. The people of like backgrounds and like circum life circumstances created opportunity for laughter and and connection and sharing and um, protection and training. Like there was just so much that they did together. And I'm sure they worked out problems. That was one of the things that David helped them do. His wisdom helped them work out problems and remain a family. And of course, family was there and they observed all of this. And and their expectations of David were adjusted, and their observation of David as a leader uh, revealed to them some of their own prejudices against him that weren't true. They were just they were just assumed that that they you know that he would be a certain type of person because of the way that they had always treated him, and yet he wasn't. He had intuitive connections to to leadership uh, principles that were. That were clearly living out in front of them, and it and it made a difference. And this uh, this this priest, this prophet called Gad. Uh, most surmise, and I don't I don't see why this wouldn't be true. Most surmise that this prophet was sent to David from Samuel. That that maybe he was, you know, I don't know if he was the the top student of the school, or if if Samuel, you know, chose him personally. Uh, because of his personality, I don't know, but he was sent to David so that David would have a resource, a place to go to connect uh, with a with a second a second opinion about where God might be leading them, or somebody whose somebody whose job it would be to constantly stay in contact with heaven, because David had a ton of other stuff to do. It was during this time that the the mighty men of David were were. Um, Assembled. These were guys that were 30 or so. I mean, the number changes back and forth because different people join at different times because occasionally one of these guys would die. But but the mighty men of David, the, the elite guard, those that were not just loyal to the protection of the families, but but really committed their lives, literally their lives to David and would do anything for him. And of that guard... There was, a, there was a, a man named Ephraim uh, who ultimately would give birth to Bathsheba. And Uriah the Hittite uh, showed up somewhere along during these times in the wilderness. We, I don't know if he showed up while he was in the cave. I believe Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, actually showed up later. 
But David, you know, he was a Hittite. The reason why he was a Hittite is uh, noted as that is because he converted, he converted to uh, worshiping Yahweh, the Hebrew God, and and the person who converted him was probably David. Also, Ahithophel showed up uh, while they were in the caves. Now, Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather, and Ahithophel's wisdom, his counsel, was something that David relied on as though it was the voice of God. That's how David described the wisdom of Ahithophel. Now, all of these people showed up. Remember, they all showed up because they were in distress, debt, discontent. Uh, they were on a wanted list. There was, you know, they, they all had that in common, and yet they were people of great value to David. They had talents and gifts that were of great value to, to the community. And a good leader recognizes that. He doesn't let the circumstances of someone's past, the, the results of someone's choices, steal the steal from him the vision of, of how God sees them. He doesn't he doesn't allow their choices and their and the results of those choices to take from him the ability to see what God has gifted this person to be. And they draw that out of them. A good leader will draw that out of them and do so in such a way that the person becomes connected to the leader and and they become a community. They become connected. There's lots of leaders who can use people. And I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. I know that there are bad leaders who use people and, in essence, abuse people and suck them dry of all the talent and gifts that they have. And then when they're done, they dismiss them because they're no longer, quote, committed to the vision or committed to God. In some cases, they manipulate them to that point. And I've been around ministries and and some churches where that has occurred, or at least I've, I've been aware of churches where that's occurred, and they just basically beat people up, um, suck them dry of any volunteer life that they have in them, and then they just, they just let them go. And often they've ended up in the places where I'm at, uh, bruised, beaten, and in desperate need of uh, rescuing, and and that's fine. You know, I'm glad to have had that role in their lives, but it's horrible that it happened to them because of bad leadership. And David didn't was not a bad leader; he was a really good leader. So he would draw out of these people the gifts and and identity and purposes that God had put in them, and he would draw it out, and not only draw it out of them, but he would draw it out of them because of the value it brought to the community. He didn't draw it out of them. You know, he didn't see it in them and be like, okay, how can I use that? I need to plug this person in to fulfill a task, to accomplish a goal so that the so that I'm protected and we have a small army that I can start to use to possibly, you know, to put some pressure on Saul to maybe to maybe create a, a division in the in the nation so that I can ultimately become king because that's what God's anointed me to be. I don't think David had that in his heart. Now, to be fair, academically, I don't think it would have been, you know, I don't think God would have abandoned David because I don't think God abandons anybody. But if David had chosen to do that, if that was the way that David chose to go after the kingship, God, like he had the freedom to do that. I don't think God was was manipulating David's choice. I believe God understood that that was a possibility, that David had the possibility to go on his own 
and and force his way into the throne room. And I don't think God would have abandoned David. I think he would have stuck with David. I think I think David still would have been the king of Israel. I don't know what the what the results of all those choices would have been. I don't think they would have been as positive as David's life turned out because David chose a different path. He chose the path of trusting God with with all of it. He trusted God with all of it. He cast all his cares on God and said, you take care of the rest. You're the good shepherd. I'm going to follow you. And David did that, but he didn't have to. And I I, I think that part of the whole dynamic of the narrative, the epic narratives of Scripture is there are so many choices and so many possibilities that, that, that could have changed the direction of the narrative. And yet, and yet all of those choices would have still still been under the the umbrella of God's goodness he, his goodness still would have arrived his goodness still would have uh, won out because his goodness is that powerful love is that powerful it would have overseen everything and i think a lot of times the way we present the stories we present them as though God is working the chess pieces and he's moving this nation and moving that nation. And, and I've heard people talk about how, you know, God had lifted his hand from Saul. And so he sent the evil spirits and we've dealt with that in the past uh, podcast a little bit, but you know, like God is using the evil spirits to push Saul one direction and he's using his angels to push David in the other direction. And he's just manipulative and, and, and quote sovereign, in all of this. And and if you question it, then they just say, well, but God is good. And he's the only righteous one. And if anybody's allowed to manipulate the world, God is because he's just and he's righteous. It just It's just that that's not the way Jesus presented his father. And, and I think it's a cop out to, I know that sounds so rude. Oh my word. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If, if you're there, I understand. I guess I understand why you're there. I do. I don't think you have to be there. I think you can you can be true to the to academic and intellectual and and spiritual kingdom principles and be able to say the possibilities are all there and God can honor your choices in uh, honor lo- love's commitment to freedom. And when you make a choice, he understands that I believe his sovereignty oversees all possibilities and all the possible results of those possibilities. And he he knows, he also knows the, <laughs> I guess for if you wanted to be mathematical about it, he knows the probabilities of every choice that you could possibly make. And although no choice will surprise him, he has a good concept because he created you and he understands you. And he knows your core intuitive natures. And he says, all right, I know the probability. These are the choices. This is the choice they will probably make. But these are all the choices they could make. And I can handle them all. I'm not going to be surprised by any of it. That's the that's the, the length and breadth of God's sovereignty that I ad- adhere to. And so I do think David could have chosen to become aggressive here. He could have looked at his resources and said, Wow, God has provided for me an army. He's provided for me a nation. I mean, he could look at the community and prophetically say, these are from all the tribes of Israel. 
I have over a thousand people from all the tribes of Israel. We could influence the nation with just the families that are represented here. Plus all the friends that I still have throughout the nation, I could call on them and say, come join me. Let's put together an army. Let's take Saul on. He has divided the nation. He is, he is a fear mongerer. He is paranoid. We need him out of power. And I have been anointed. We can confirm that with what? With God's appointed prophet Samuel can confirm to the nation that I am anointed the next king of Israel. I am the one who should be in control. And he could have gone that direction, and he wouldn't have been wrong. It was a choice he could have made. He chose not to. I think that's beautiful. And it speaks to the heart and intuitive leadership nature of David. He chose to build community. He chose to strengthen family. He chose to take responsibilities as a leader that weren't his to take. He could have easily just walked away from people or said, listen, I... I, you know, this is on me. I'm taking care of myself. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't my time. Uh, you're not my people. You're not my tribe. You're just a bunch of weirdos who owe money to the state, who are back on your taxes, who are ex-cons. I love you guys. I think it's awesome that we all found each other, but I'm supposed to be the next king of Israel. I don't think you guys are going to help me get there. You don't have the connections I need. I need to find another way. And he could have chose that as well. The way he chose is the way he chose. And God would God is part of it all because God never leaves us. His love is always available. His goodness is always there. And to take a you know to take a, an entire podcast on the last one and just talk through the fact that he was in this cave and all the re relational ramifications of it and the physical ramifications of it. And then he says, you know what, uh, you know, mom and dad, I'm going to take care of you. I know we're not super close. I get that. But I love you. And I'm going to take on that responsibility. And he protects, he protects them in Moab. And Moab's more than willing to help because at some level there's a family connection. And then the prophet that has been sent to him from Samuel says, I don't think we should stay here. We should go to the forest, to the land of Judah. So he packs up everybody and he heads off for the forest. And that's awesome. So there, there they are. They're in the forest. And then we kind of get this, this flip in the storyline. In verse 6, we kind of get, okay, meanwhile, back at the palace, Saul is freaking out. Saul hears that David and his men had been discovered. Now I want to pause there because I think that there's a there is a pause there. He finds out that David is alive. He finds out that David is at the cave, you know, had been at the caves of Adullam. He finds out that David is putting together and from his perspective putting together an army. That he's got a, a large group of men and 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 families that are gathering around him and he starts to worry why cuz paranoia is a self destroyer <laughs> that's what's going on it says here and Saul was seated spear in hand there it is again intimidation at the ready 
Under the Terramesk tree, he's under a tree. On the hill at Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side. Now, I don't know how often he did this, but I get the sense that that this was kind of uh, not unusual for him. He liked to be surrounded by all of his officials. And he's he's outside under the under the uh, Teramisk tree on the on a hill at Gibeah because because he wants the world to see that he's in control. He's in charge. He's surrounded by by his people. Because as a paranoid leader who lives in a who, who creates a culture of fear and intimidation, he needs to make sure people know that he has his people. Because the rumors are spreading, and he thinks everybody knows. Everybody knows that David's at, you know, at uh, well, maybe he's at the forest at this point, but that David's putting together this large group of people, this army to come up against him. That David has this, these, these counselors around him, a prophet around him. That you know, uh, David is David's a threat. David's a threat to the throne. David's a threat to the nation. David David has committed treason. David has tried to side and work out deals with the Philistines. David's the problem, and these are the these are the things that are like rolling in in uh, Saul's head all the time. David, 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 David's doing this. David's doing that. Saul's trying to set up a trade agreement with a with another nation. It's trying to set up a peace agreement with another nation. And people are talking to, to Saul and, and, you know, they're going to ask the natural question. So what about David? What do you mean, what about David? I, I don't know. I just, you know, I, I heard uh, my people tell me he's putting together a pretty good-sized group of, uh, of fighting men. What, what are you going to do about him? Don't you worry, I'll take care of him. He's got nothing, nothing but a bunch of malcontents. And, and misfits out there in the hills. And he dismisses David and humiliates David verbally and, and talks against him verbally. But internally, he's thinking, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do about David? People want to know what I'm going to do about David. Other nations want to know what I'm going to do about David. Tradesmen want to know if if David is still a part of my cabinet, if I'm still trying to kill David. Yes, I'm still trying to kill David. David's the problem. If David would go away, all my problems would go away. I could set up all these deals the way I want. There'd be no families that would be up against me. There'd be no secondary army against me. There'd be no civil war. In his mind, there's a civil war going on. In David's mind, he's just leading a people. He's just trying to stay alive. He's literally going to wait until God tells him to do something. And until then, he's going to take care of men, women, and children who come to him. But the perspectives are different, right? We look at David and, and, and see one thing. Saul looks at David and sees another. And you can't blame Saul's perspective. It does make sense from, from the way he's coming at it. From a fear-based leadership role, David's a threat. There's no way to deny that. And I guess sometimes you have to understand, you may do a wonderful job leading and still be a threat to other people. I've seen this happen so many times in ministry. I've seen 
youth pastors become threats to the senior pastor and the senior pastor move them on. Or I've seen them talk bad about them and belittle them and, and eventually create a rift between the youth pastor and the elder board or the deacon board or the council board or or whatever governing body is out there. And, and the youth pastor doesn't even know. And I've seen youth pastors use it against the senior leader by saying, well, you know, I... I, you know, I've met with all the families last night, and all the families think we should do this. What are you going to do? And the and the pastor feels pressure, and the youth pastor's feeling like, yeah, I've got some power, I've got some authority here. I can I can shift the momentum of the church and the vision of the church into something that I believe. I, and I I don't think their motive is evil. It's just they go up against this other vision, and it becomes this this civil war. And as far as Saul goes, that's what's happening here. David's doing a great job as a leader, but you have to understand sometimes, even when you're doing a great job, you're going to seem like a threat to somebody else. So you have to be you have to be alert to that. Now there wasn't a whole lot David could do. He was doing his best to stay out of the way. He wasn't he wasn't sending out flyers or or uh, you know messengers to all the villages saying, hey, if you want to join David's team, come down to the forest. Or come out to the caves, come and join us. It's just people who were like, you know what? I'm in trouble. I've got nowhere else to go. Saul is out to get me because I'm connected to somebody he doesn't like. So I'm just going to go to this group of people. And they would join the group. It's, it's a fascinating study. So David hears... or Saul hears about David and his men. And he's standing there with his spear. And he says in verse 7, he says, listen... Men of Benjamin. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought I thought all of his officials were standing at his side. Oh, he calls them men of Benjamin. Why would he do that? Well, because insecure leaders will only put their people in positions of leadership. It doesn't matter if they have the qualifications to be there. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And the only people that were surrounding Saul at this time were men of Benjamin. They were people who had proven loyalty to Saul. They were not going to question Saul. Saul felt like they were trustworthy. Saul, uh, as paranoid as Saul was, they made him feel least paranoid. There were probably a couple servants like Doag from other other countries or other places, but generally speaking, he considered them all Benjamites, people that could not and would not be disloyal to him. Listen, men and Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, in other words, will this person of another family give all of you fields and vineyards? Will they make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you all have conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me as he does on this very day. Wow. That's what it is. Saul 
accuses everybody. All of his family, all of his people. He says what? Aha, all right, I'm back. Sorry, uh, my wife called. And, uh, you know, when she calls, the world ends. Or at least my world comes to a stop and we figure out what's going on. So anyways, everything's good. All is good. It's all good. I forget where we were. Oh, so we, we have a very insecure, paranoid, lack of identity leader who's in charge of everything, has a ton of power. He's speaking to, quote, his people, men of Benjamin, and he asked them these questions. Well, the son of Jesse, right? He doesn't use David's name anymore. That's a sign of disrespect, a sign of the of, of enmity, the fact that David is an enemy, the son of Jesse, that guy. Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Basically, he's, he's admitting that he's given positions of power to all these men of Benjamin who weren't qualified for them. That's that's the question. It's not, it's he's not questioning them saying, do you think David's going to do this for you? He's reminding them that David didn't do this for him. them. He did it. He's saying, I've given you all these positions of power. I've given you all these positions of authority and trust in my cabinet. Because you are my people. And then he accuses them all of conspiracy. Is that is that why you've all conspired against me? Because I've given you all these things and now you think you can conspire against me? Now you think you can do what you want? No one told me that my son made a covenant with my, my son, Jonathan, made a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you told me this. Now, I don't know which covenant they're talking about, but I have no doubt that Saul knew that he and that his son Jonathan and David had had a covenant of friendship. But I'm I'm guessing he's talking about the about the fact that Jonathan helped David escape. This is about his paranoia that Jonathan questioned him in front of all of these people at the banquet when he said, "What has David done?" What crime has he committed? Why is he? Why have you signed a death warrant against him? He's like, no, nobody told me. Nobody told me. No one's concerned about me. No one's concerned. You all are just out there enjoying all the blessings that I gave you. You're enjoying all the money that I gave you. You're enjoying all the land and all of the power that I gave you. I did that. And now you nobody cares about me. Oh man, if that isn't a sign of poor leadership. Right? Oh man. Oh, somebody who's struggling as a leader is somebody who's gonna who's got you know who's gonna ask the question like, I don't I don't understand why people don't like me. I'm a nice guy. I'm a, I'm a wonderful I'm a wonderful uh woman. I, I'm a I'm a good person. I do nice things for people. I, I give them things. I, I let them do what they want. They, they come to me with an idea and I tell them they can do it. I, I don't know, I don't know why people don't like me. You know, they, they need help. I, I, I they, they come to me and they ask me for help. I, I released the benevolent fund to them. We paid for their electricity or we bought them tires for the car or, 
or you know they they needed they they had a baby so i got them a raise from the from the finance committee i i did all these great things and now and now nobody likes me nobody will talk to me nobody will tell me when there's trouble brewing in the in the children's ministry nobody will no nobody told me that the secretary was mad at me and and wanted to leave all of a sudden she's gone she she doesn't say anything she doesn't say anything she just leaves and now now she's mad and I, I never knew. Nobody ever told me. I, I need people to report back to me all the things that are going on. I mean, bad leadership is is always you know self-centered, and this is what we see here in Saul. We see these print. That's this is why these questions are there. It's not that Saul asked these questions specifically, although he might have. It's not that Saul only asked these questions. It's just that Saul is filled with self-pity. He's filled with self-focus. Uh, and he just says, basically, I, 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 I'm the victim here. I'm the victim. I've done everything for everyone else. I've, I've given my life to the service of God in this country. And nobody loves me. Nobody appreciates what I've done. You all are just selfish uh, egos, you know, pride-centered, selfish, arrogant people who only are concerned about the things that I gave you anyways. You wouldn't have even had these things if I hadn't given to you. If, if I wasn't such a wonderful person to begin with, you would never have these things. And now look at you. You don't even care about me. And maybe, maybe you don't know this, you know, this person in a place of leadership. Maybe, you, you know, for you, it is an example of a parent somebody who just, you know, who just reminds you constantly, you would never have made it through life without me. You ever met a, a, a parent like that? I have. I have. I've met them. I've counseled them. I've tried to walk them through circumstances. It's it's difficult because when a parent sees themselves as a victim of underappreciation for all the things they've done, like the list of the things that a parent has done for a child is endless and when you you know i'll help them work through a few of them and then it's like oh well let me open up this bag <laughs> and this bag here i want to dump out 50 more things that i've done for them and they did not thank me and they did not call me and they did not text they couldn't even text me a thank you they didn't even you know they needed me and i showed up i showed up i did what i was supposed to do i was the good guy and now they're now they don't even they don't even think of me they don't even think of me Oh man, I, I just, you know, I, I sit there not, I'm not upset. I'm really not, I'm not even offended. I'm sad. I'm sad for the journey that they have to take in order to get as far as they need to get to a place where they can no longer, where, where, where they will no longer be a victim, but can live in a world of gratefulness and hope and love and joy and peace. Like they have closed themselves off so many times to the goodness of God and their awareness of God within them and the love of God that's that that would ooze out of them. And now everything that the love of God, you know, encouraged them to do, they now take on as as a personal affront. They're personally offended that they weren't in some way acknowledged or continually acknowledged for what they did. It's it's crazy because at some level they're also training their children to do the same thing. And that's why I think David's father was uh, not David, sorry. I think Saul's father was the same way. Because of the way that Saul's treating his 
his leadership. That's the way his father trained him to be as a leader. And Saul was the recipient of all of that. Saul was a recipient of the arrogant, selfish leadership style, fear-developing fear style of a, of a father in charge of the, of the greatest, most amazing, uh, world-renowned mule breeders, wealthy, powerful, and Saul has become his father. And there he is, complaining, whining. He's the victim. He's done everything for all of his people. All the tribe of Benjamin now has benefited from the benevolent and, and loving care of Saul as king, and nobody loves him. They've all conspired against him. They don't tell him when his son is making all of these agreements with, with the son of Jesse. None of you are concerned enough to tell me that my son has incited my servant, which would be David, to lie in wait for me, as he does today. So Saul is whining and complaining. I, it's it's just it's just crazy. But it's 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 also recognizably easy to get there, because when you don't know who you are, you are under constant pressure to show up as somebody. And Saul went with what he knew. He went with the life of a fear mongering dictator. Because that's what his father trained him to be. But the difference is Saul has a ton of authority and resources. And he thinks, again, he thinks David is lying in wait. He's, a, he's, a, he's a so paranoid. He's so paranoid that he believes that, that David purposely is putting together this group of people to ambush him and kill him. And it's, you know, a whole nother thread of this, this victimization is he's telling everybody, I've given you all this stuff. Do you think David's going to let you keep it when he kills me? Do you think David's going to let you be the commander of thousands and the commander of hundreds? Do you think he's going to give you the money and authority and leadership of the nation? Do you think he's going to do that when he kills me? He's lying in wait for me. And he's, he's lying in wait for me because none of you told me that my son was conspiring against me. I mean, he's accusing Jonathan of treason right here. The covenant that my son made with David is treasonous because David lies in wait for me. He wants to kill me. And my son had to have known this. And you had to, you all had to have known that, that Jonathan was doing this. And you all didn't tell me because you are a bunch of selfish, arrogant, uh, uh, leeches that are sucking me dry of all the love and care and 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 uh, um, benefits that I can give you. You just keep sucking from me, and my life is is in, in danger. I'm about to die out here. I'm about to die, and none of you care. And I picture Saul doing this. I mean, he's under the tree, but he's he's probably walking around and he's got the spear and he's tapping it on the floor and he's. And he's poking people kind of under the chin with it as he's telling them, you, you wouldn't have, do you think you would be a commander if it wasn't for me? Do you think the son of Jesse is going to take care of you when he kills me? And he wanders around to another one. Do you look at me? You knew that Jonathan made a covenant. You knew it. 
and you did nothing. You didn't say nothing. And he, you know, I, he probably bopped him on the head or smacked him. I mean, just the intimidation. And yet the whole time he's, he's being, you know, intimidating, he's also claiming to be the only nice guy in the building, the only good guy in the circle, the only one who loves everyone. Oh, man, it it is so twisted when this happens. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen on multiple levels. Like I said, as, uh, I've seen it happen in, in families. I've seen it happen in ministry. I've seen it happen in business. These kind of leaders, and they are out there, they are difficult to, to work with. They are harsh leaders. So, so we're all there under the, under the tree, right? We're all st- sitting around. We're all listening to this maniacal, paranoid king remind us, remind everyone that they are unqualified for the roles and powers that he's given them. So basically he's calling them all idiots. Then he's accusing them all of conspiracy. And then he's, he's, he accuses them all again of knowing that David's out there to kill him, that he's setting up, uh, that he's, <laughs> he's setting up for an ambush. And in all of that, Doag is there. Now, Doag is the Edomite, right? He's not a Benjamite. He's an Edomite. So he's part of the family. He's well-trusted. As I said before, he was the he was the overseer of all of Saul's uh, uh, livestock, which meant he was really the overseer of the king's, the king's wealth. So he says, uh, I saw the son of Jesse. He went to Elimelech, the son of uh, Ahitab at Nob. And Elimelech inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Wow. Wow. Doag, the Edomite, he does what people who live and work under this type of leadership do all the time. You you look for information, you gather information, and then you wait for the perfect time to release that information so that it is the of the best benefit for you. When when you live in a place of uh, when you live or work under a world of fear, information becomes a commodity. When you live in a place of community and connection, information becomes a place of conversation. It becomes a place of connection. A problem becomes something that you work through. Gossip becomes something you gain understanding from. You hear some gossip and you, you bring it up to the person it's about. I've done this hundreds of times in my life where I've heard something, uh, about either, uh, uh, we'll say, uh, you know, one of my volunteer workers or, uh, when I ran camp, you know, from regarding a counselor or a couple, and I would bring the couple in or I'd bring the counselor in or I'd bring the, the volunteer in and I would say, okay, I, I, have to, I have to tell you, this is a rumor. I know it's a rumor because it didn't come from you. And, and if it came from you, it'd be, you know, it's something we can work through. But, but I heard a rumor and rather than you know, continue the rumor or rather than 
respond to the rumor. I just figured I'd listen. I said, thank you very much. And I thought, I'm just going to talk to this person directly. So sometimes I'd bring them into the office, but often for me, I know that that's very intimidating. So I would usually find the person, you know, at the cafeteria, if we were at camp or I'd, or I'd talk to him after the youth meeting when it was, when everybody was kind of letting go. And I tried to make it as casual as, as possible because I knew it could be an awkward, if, if the rumor was true, if the gossip was true, it could be a very awkward or, or intense conversation. I would, I would try and set up for the best opportunity for, to communicate because that's the kind of leader you want. And I, I do try to learn how to be a good leader and how to communicate well. So I would set it up and I would say, listen, I've heard this rumor. So let's have this conversation. And, and that's what, a, that's what an, uh, a culture of community does. A culture of fear, even if it, even in a mild sense, right? I, I know I keep saying a leader who creates a culture of fear, but, but usually it doesn't always mean that they're like out to kill everyone. It just means that they created a culture in which information becomes valuable. Information becomes something you hang on to. You can't tell them everything. Because if you say something, it might upset them or it might set them off. And sometimes you're not necessarily afraid of what the leader might do to you. It's what they might do when they find out. And so it's best if they just don't know. It's best if they just don't know. Because, because often somebody who runs uh, from, a, from a position of fear is also looking for control and they know information gives them control. They want to know everything that's going on because everything that going goes on, they take personally. They want to know. And, and if something happens and you've taken care of it or you've handled it and they find out, then they want to know, well, why, did, why didn't you tell me? Why, why didn't you tell me uh, so-and-so was thinking about leaving? And then you're in, you're in a pickle and you think, well, cause it was information, you know, I didn't know, I didn't, <laughs> and often <laughs> it, it, it can get sticky. Move on, Bob. You're trying to tell the story of David, not your personal life. Well, I, I do weave in a little bit of my personal life. It's just, you know, it's what makes these stories for me come alive. So they apply to so many things. It's a huge narrative. It deals with tons of circumstances. So Doag, the Edomite, steps up with information at the time. You know, you can picture it in the modern boardroom. The the paranoid, fear-mongering CEO is laying down the law, accusing everybody of taking advantage of the company, of, of taking advantage of their positions, of actually not doing any work or helping him run the country or the, the company at all. You all are just, you know, sucking from from the finances of the company and the benefits of the company. You're enjoying all the benefits of the company, but you're not helping me run the company because you're not telling me what's going on. I got people that have got side deals going on of with other companies and other other parts of the of the country that are actually going to destroy me. They're trying to destroy me, and none of you are doing a thing to help me. Blah, 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 blah. And there's Doag at the side of the table, right? He kind of leans forward. He's like, uh, boss. So I saw the son of David. Um, he went to the priest, Elimelech, Ahimelech, you know, three miles away at, at Nob. He, he went there. I saw him. He was on his, uh, uh, I'm guessing he must've been on his way to the Philistines at the time. Um, and, uh, and Elimelech, 
inquired of the Lord for him, and, and he gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath. So what do you do when you have gossip? And it's and and you're not using you're not using information to gain understanding from one another. You're not using information to grow in relationship. You're using it to 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 uh, propel yourself into greater favor with leadership. You embellish that truth, the gossip. You embellish what you saw. You embellish what you heard. You em, you let people know what you know what's implied. So he says, Elimelech inquired of the Lord for him. There's no record that that occurred because <laughs> I personally don't think the Lord would have said, run down to the Philistines, uh, go to the king of the Philistines and Gath, act like a madman till he kicks you out and then run off to the caves. I don't think that was the God's ideal plan. Like I said, I don't think it was evil or sinful. I just think God was like, well, that was possible. You could have chose a number of ways out of this, but you chose that one. Okay, all right. You know, I, I'm still with you. Well, I, my goodness is still with you. Don't worry about it. But come on, David, you should have at least asked. I mean, you were standing there with a priest. You asked for bread and for weapons. You're with a priest. You should have known. Anyways, so he embellishes the truth. First, he starts with the lie, and then he says, and he gave him provisions, which, of course, leaves any number of things. How many provisions? For how long? For how far? How much? And does it include money? He literally gave him five loaves of bread, basically enough to stave off hungry, hunger for the day. It wasn't really even enough to last for several days. David had already probably gone at least a day, if not two, without eating a whole lot of anything out there in the field. I'm sure he ate something but probably not a lot of anything. And he did give him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, which, of course, was a national treasure. A national treasure. And it, and, and, and a huge negotiating tool with the Philistines. To hear this, Saul must have been livid. And we'll see just how livid he got with the rest of this chapter, I'm going to end here just because I think that there's a lot of things we can learn about our own leadership style and the way that people interact with us when we are in charge of something, the way that we parent, the way that we lead our, our Sunday school class or our ministry or our church. There's just a lot of things we can learn from the way that Saul reacted to information and the way that David reacted to to information and the way that Saul reacted to people and the way that David reacted to people and the choices they made, they both made choices that were intuitive to them. One, because I believe Saul was reacted to a comfort zone of leadership that his father had trained him in. And David reacted the opposite of the way he was trained because I believe he was connected to heaven enough that he understood what, what, leadership qualities his father had that weren't to be mimicked, that weren't to be followed. And he chose to do that. I don't think God manipulated either man into the choices they made. I don't think God sent evil spirits to one and angels to another. I think God's goodness was available for both and both made the choices they made and they both will have the results of those choices, which is a beautiful thing and a terribly scary thing to think about when it comes to the results of our choices. So, I'll uh we'll pick this up. Uh, we'll pick this up with the next podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Epic Narrative. If you have questions for Bob or would like to reach out for booking, please email us at thebobswitzer at gmail.com or visit thebobswitzer.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Epic Narrative Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. See you next week for another chapter in our story on The Epic Narrative. Thank you.